and welcome to Endpoint Management Today, the Big Fix podcast. My name is Rhonda Student Kaiser, and I'm the Director of Customer Experience for Big Fix. And I'm James Stewart, Big Fix Session Relevance Enthusiast. So today we have with us Lisa Tolls. Uh, Lisa is one of our client advocacy managers, and uh, we promise we'll tell you a whole lot more about that later on. Um, hi, Lisa. Hi, Rhonda, and hi, James. I'm glad to be here and excited to be a part of this series. So, Lisa, what got you started in tech? So my first technical role was a technical writer for a small software company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I lived um, from 1992 to 2007. And then that role led me to um, technical documentation roles at Sandy National Labs and then Google. And then I joined Big Fix in 2008. So what it, were your roles at Sandia and Google also in that technical writing space? Or what did you do at those companies? Uh, yes. So at Sandia Labs, I was in the safety basis department, part of ES&H, Environmental Safety and Health. And I worked on Kirtland Air Force Base. And I had a top secret clearance. And it was a really interesting position um, being a technical writer there. And then when I moved to California, I worked at Google as a senior information designer, which was um, a really interesting role that was kind of a cross between a technical writer and a content developer and content strategist. And then in 2008, I was hired um, to work for Big Fix, and the rest is history. So 2008 is pretty early. What got you started at Big Fix? So I was hired as a senior technical writer initially, and this is when Big Fix was a startup, and I was the only full-time technical writer back then. I wasn't the only ever technical writer, so there were people who had contributed to technical writing, but I was the first full-time technical writer that was ever hired um, for Big Fix back then. So that was really fun. And then two two years later, we were acquired. And then shortly thereafter, I started... um, I I took on a new role as a manager of a team of technical writers, which eventually later on included 15 writers in six different countries. So that was a huge challenge, and it was just a great uh, great experience. So what was it like being the first full-time technical writer? (laughs) It was was great. It was the Wild West back then, and it was just awesome. There are some of my best memories. And many of those people I still work with today. And it was just really fun. And as a technical writer um, for Big Fix back then, I got opportunities to talk with our customers. That was one of the things that I wanted to do to kind of broaden the authenticity of the content that I was writing is not only working with developers to understand the technical features that I was writing about, but to talk to external customers and ask them what they needed in the documentation. So I So my experience talking with our customers goes back to my very first um, days and months with the product. That's really cool. It must have been like a lot of groundwork that you had to be figuring out being the first full-time person in that role. Yes, but there were other people who um, who had been contributing to technical writing. And so so the development teams were used to talking to people about um, about the different features and functionalities so that whoever had that technical writing role um, was going to sort of translate that into something that would be universally consumable. Hmm. And then after that, you switched to 
a role as a release manager. What was that like? Yeah, so um, I was the release manager for development and test automation for the web UI, and I did that for a few years. And then most recently, I transitioned to another part of the business as one of two big fix client advocacy managers. You, you skipped over the part where you were my boss. <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dirty laundry here. Uh, no, I yes, that's true. Um, you were one of uh, a number of developers that reported to me during that time, and um, and that was great. And it's it's been great working with you um, all this time. So yes, absolutely, it's been great working with you too. Thank you. How much did you pay her for that, James? <laughs> <laughs> that endorsement. Yes. Yes. And and then also part of the um, I I mean I'll I'll tell you guys more about the client advocacy piece um, but uh, but also part of the story and the journey is that I also spent time every year concurrently and this goes back to about 2012 organizing some of our external user groups and that involved hosting biweekly calls with a handful of our most engaged local Bay Area customers. And that typically went on for like five or six months leading up to the event. And it was a great opportunity for me to solicit direct customer feedback and, and hear what they thought about the event details, giving them a voice and creating a by customers for customers vibe, which I think really does a lot to engender trust and build community. So um, so my journey across all these different areas has given me a, a good broad understanding, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm still learning, but... Um, understanding of how the parts fit together and why Big Fix has the significant market impact that it does. So what's interesting about that user group stuff is that was actually before I started at Big Fix. Right. I was at UC Berkeley and I was uh, a part of those user group organizations with you and Stacy Lee. And I feel like a lot of our listeners might not realize like how instrumental you are to organizing that user group and making it a success and really how much goes on behind the scenes because there's really a lot that happens. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And Aaron Bauer was my partner in crime for all of those events that we were um, that we were working with customers on. So, I mean, it really does take a village. And, um, and we had some very engaged people within the product team and then also some very engaged customers who have been part of all of these and, and participating and showing up every week and sharing their feedback and helping to build something that's going to be of value to people. So thank you. Yeah. And that was actually my first, uh, you know, other than using the product, that was my first introduction to the Big Fix community was mm. at the Bay Area user group. So mm -hmm. even before the conferences? Yeah. Yeah. I came to wow. the user group a couple of times before, uh, before the conferences. So I remember you. Yeah. I remember seeing you at both. So I wasn't sure which came first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did the user group thing first and then, yeah, started coming to the conferences and then masterclass and a few other things. And yeah, then eventually I came over here to do what I'm doing today, which is also very exciting. So, you know, it seems like we all have our, our really unique journeys with, with Big Fix. Mm -hmm. So Lisa, um, so we've been talking about your role as a client advocacy program manager, but maybe you can just tell us uh, and our listeners a little bit more about the client advocacy program and what it what it is, what it does, and what, what we hope to get from, from those conversations that happen as part of the advocacy program. 
Yeah, I, I think um, this is a great role for me because it gives me great opportunities to engage directly with our awesome customers and then extend that so that I'm now pairing them with one of our talented engineers as their advocate. So that means that they're leveraging that person's care, their technical expertise, their product knowledge, and basically have a central point of contact and someone who cares about their success and is in their corner to sort of help things run smoothly and tie it all together. So I, I just think it's a great program. It's a notable market differentiator for us. And for me, it's just really meaningful as a way to visibly demonstrate the care we feel for our customers. Yeah, it really shows how passionate you are about the customers just in the user group stuff, but also your clam is advocacy work and all this stuff. It's really great. Thank you. And it's been really exciting to see, you know, how how much more intimate we get with those customers um, that they can really have a, an impact on our roadmap. You know, I think, as you said, it's a market differentiator for us, but it's also just, you know, we really we want to hear the voice of our customer. I, you know, I think that we're a lot closer to our customers and our customer needs than a lot of other companies out there. I might be biased, of course. I mean, I do work for the company, but, but, but you know, having sat on both sides of the, of, of the equation, I really do feel like it's, it's been pretty awesome for us. Well, and that's what's interesting um, is that you've both sat on both sides of that. Yeah, very true. Yeah, you've both been customers and now you're part of the internal team. So, I mean, that, that makes your knowledge of the product, um, you know, you're bringing so much to your roles because of that knowledge. That's awesome. Well, and I think that's part of why both Rhonda and I joined Big Fix is because we were so passionate and engaged by the Big Fix community itself and the, you know, product and the developers and people like yourself, Lisa, that it just felt like such an awesome thing to be part of. Yep. So, Lisa, what is your favorite part of Big Fix? When I step back and, and kind of look broadly at it, efficiency is something that just makes me happy. So like cutting waste and redundancy just makes things work better and faster. And I think Big Fix's power is how it can consolidate tools and tasks to be a single endpoint management solution. So when you think about a customer with like a large centralized deployment, this efficiency can not only simplify their ongoing operations, but can potentially create significant cost savings for them. So that efficiency, I think, is awesome. Yeah, I agree with you there uh, wholeheartedly across the board. <laughs> you know, as we've as we've been talking, obviously we've been talking about the Big Fix community and you know what we you know what keeps us engaged in that. Maybe you can just tell us. You know, I mean, clearly you have a role where you're talking to customers on a regular basis, but you're also really still very engaged in the broader community. And what keeps you engaged there? I've always felt that customers really need each other, and I really love seeing the support that they give to each other. Um, so I think our user forum is an obvious way for customers to use their technical expertise and leadership to provide guidance about how they've used Big Fix to solve a problem, and I love that. I love reading those stories. Um, technical questions on the forum are addressed by, of course, our technical advisors, the development teams, and from other customers. So I see so much engagement there coming from all directions, and that's awesome. Yeah, I think sometimes our customers solve more problems than we do <laughs> for each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always there's always a unique problem out there that needs solving, and Big Fix just happens to be a tool that can solve almost any problem on your devices. So 
customers can really come together and help each other solve something. And and sometimes one customer solves it, puts it out there, and then another customer comes and improves upon that solution and makes it even better because when they tried to implement that solution, they came across an edge case that wasn't expected for the first time. And then you end up with an even better solution than it started, which is great. Yep. Yeah. And then somebody like James comes along and says, you know what? I think everybody could use this. Let's figure out how we throw this into the product itself. And voila, <laughs> the life cycle of an idea is <laughs> yep, is demonstrated. Yeah, we're hoping to have more of those kind of solutions come to things like Big Fix Labs in the near future. That's something that we're trying to re- revitalize and get more of that stuff into the product more directly in a way that is easier to consume and not have to go out to the forums or big fix me to get that solution mm-hmm. in the first place. So Lisa, what are some new technologies and things that you're inter- ex- excited about? So one of my personal passions is quantum computing. So I've always been very interested in quantum physics. And one of the biggest issues with the accuracy and integrity of quantum computing is something called quantum error correction. So this is something that I spent a lot of time reading about. Um, It's just a fascinating field that studies tools, strategies, methodologies to reduce what's called quantum noise to bring more accuracy to quantum computing results. So when you think about the amount of content that can be stored and the speed with which quantum computers can compute results, it's just mind-boggling as compared with classical computing. And then the whole thing about quantum entanglement and superposition of the different fields of storing data um, and the new tools and algorithms to manage this noise, um, it's just of endless interest to me. So I'm still learning, but um, being a member of some LinkedIn groups related to quantum computing helps me participate in discussions about these developments with experts who are like doing the work every day. So it's awesome. And then my husband's a high school physics teacher, so I get to watch his science experiments. And that's just another kind of extension of my physics passion. What, What got you interested in quantum computing and physics in the first place? I started reading about quantum physics um, when I was in my 20s, so a long time ago, and I, I was just kind of curious about um, it's, it's a world um, where there's so much going on, and it's a world that we can't see. I mean, that's, that's what's fascinating about it. I mean, quantum physics um, and, um, and quantum particles and quantum theory, it's, it's just fascinating. I, I, don't, I don't know what drew me to it. I was just drawn to it, and I'm still drawn to it. Do you have a love for science fiction or anything like that? Oh, yeah. That has kind of theor- like purely, purely theoretical things that may never be possible. And then quantum uh, physics is kind of this weird place where those two things meet. It, well, exactly, yeah. So I am a huge sci-fi fan. Um, one of my favorite authors is Michio Kaku, and he wrote a book called The Physics of the Impossible, and it's all about the kind of Star Trek stuff that we see and how it's actually happening. I mean, not everything, but yeah, it's um, he's a wonderful writer and a wonderful teacher, and it's just fascinating to watch how these things are evolving. Yeah, that is really cool. I, I like to theorize about it. I like I like I love Big Bang Theory and I like you know some of the 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 problems that they that they talked about but and mm-hmm. and I always love to read those kind of books like you know back in the day Robert Heinlein was my favorite author and mm-hmm. and and he would uh, you know I'd read something about 
I don't know, space travel or something like that. And it would make total sense to me when I read it, but I could not repeat it to <laughs> save my life. You know, <laughs> it's like it, it, the, how it processes in my life or in my brain is complete. Like one, one is completely differentiated from the other. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely a big sci-fi fan and I do find quantum computing and quantum physics interesting, but I've definitely never gone down the rabbit hole that it seems like you have, Lisa. So that's cool. Yeah, the, the quantum error correction part um, is just fascinating because there's very little they can do. There's very little that quantum um, physicists and, and, and quantum um, scientists can do without figuring out that piece. You know, I mean, the, the whole thing about like um, the observable behaviors, once you observe um, an experiment, whatever content it was in there that you were experimenting, it changes. So, I mean, you're no longer observing what you thought you were observing. And so there has to be a way to compartmentalize that and, and kind of make it make it solid and unchangeable and rigid so that the scientists who are running these experiments can understand the validity of whether it's working or not without ruining it by looking at it. So, and every time you observe it, it creates more noise, which, um, which kind of impacts the accurate, the accuracy. So it's, it's just fascinating. I could read about it forever and it's, and it's something that I read about every day. Yeah. That's really cool. That that is really cool. Um, I was I was reading. It's not exactly the same, but I was listening to a podcast, a new podcast, James. Just so you know, it's called the oh, uh, 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 oh shoot, cautionary tales, and ah. it's it's all these stories about um, like things that happened in real life that uh, that should be cautionary tales for for going forward. And they were talking um, uh, they were talking about in the in the context of um, music they were talking about people would get like stuck on a on a song or something like that and they had this like deck of cards that had these like completely random ridiculous things to do and so like Phil Collins ended up he was playing drums but he had to play it with like beer cans or something like that i mean it's like really <laughs> ridiculous things just to like do something in a different way to bring things together and lisa's story reminded me of that they talked about how and sometimes with artificial intelligence they'll they'll throw in you know, specific randomness in order to kind of bound the experiment, because with AI, you could just go into sort of analysis paralysis. And so by by throwing in this, like, by specifically throwing in randomness, it helped develop an answer. Mm. I don't know, it's really, it was just really fascinating. I thought it was really cool. Mm. That is interesting. Really yeah. do, you, do you listen to any podcasts, Lisa? Um, I have a I have a podcast app and I listen to um, two podcasts when I'm on the treadmill. That's my so I, I consider when I'm when I'm exercising, um, that's when I do my learning. So sometimes I go to TED.com and I listen to a TED talk, but I also listen to different podcasts. So those are fun. Any that you would like to recommend? I know I, I would have to look them up and write the names of them down, but, <laughs> okay. but there are a lot that I really like um, and, and they're on kind of random, random topics, just depending on what I feel like. Very cool. Yeah. 
So as we were kind of talking about um, our, our conversation today, I was telling you guys how uh, we kind of have the student at Kaiser help desk at, at our house and, and level one of our, our triage of, of incoming calls and, and questions is, you know, is this a hardware problem or is this a software problem? And, you know, if it's hardware, my husband ends up with the, with the question and I end up with the uh, software <laughs> questions. Um, so uh, Lisa, uh, in that manner, you know, what's, what kind of uh, IT problems are questions have you had to solve for your friends and family? Interesting. So thinking about my parents, um, I think browsers have a bigger impact to online experience than we realize. So my parents engage me pretty regularly to help with IT issues related to things like email, but also other UI related things. And it's always interesting to see the differences in UI and content display depending on um, well, I, I think there are, there are a lot more variables than we realize. So depending on, um, on platform, browser, browser version, OS and OS version. And so when something's not right, that there's kind of like this path that I go down. And um, sometimes it makes me feel like, um, like wow, I, I knew more about that than I thought I did. And other times I, that they just have some kind of weird configuration setting on, on their machine and I can't help them. I mean, they use, uh, they're, they're pretty, pretty computer literate and, um, and they have new, uh, new MacBooks. And so they're using new equipment. Um, but yeah, they have some weird anomalies. And so I'm always happy and rewarded when I can help them with that. But sometimes I can't. One thing that I find really interesting is someone comes to you with a question like that and you just kind of like assume that they're on like their MacBook or whatever and you're trying to help them. And then it's only like partway down trying to solve the problem that you realize, that, oh, they're actually talking about like their phone or tablet or something. It's like, oh, mm. well, my approach is like completely different or, <laughs> the, or, what, or what I'm trying to tell them to do. They are saying, well, I can't do that. And you're like, mm-hmm. what do you mean you can't do that? And then you realize, oh, it's because they're looking at a totally different device in a totally different browser with a totally different UI and buttons and mm-hmm. messaging and everything. And you just have like a translation error. Uh, happening. Mm -hmm. Exactly. A lot of times, um, a lot of times if we can't figure it out, I'll have, um, I'll have one of them take a picture of what they see on the screen and text it to me. You know, I mean, I don't have, um, I don't have any tools to kind of remote into their computer and look around. And so that way they can show me what they're seeing. And I might say, ah, okay. So, so this is different than what I'm looking at on my machine. And, and that might lead to other ideas. You know, a lot of times it's just trial and error, but yeah, it's so it just kind of depends, but it's it's interesting. Yeah. It really is amazing how awesome it can be to have someone just like take a picture of the problem and send it to you. <laughs> because sometimes that will capture problems that wouldn't actually be captured in a screenshot. Like if someone's having a a problem with their display or their graphics card, sometimes the the if they were to take a screenshot, it would look perfect. But they're saying, but I'm seeing all these problems on my screen. Mm. And then they send you a picture and you see what they're seeing and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, you're right. There is all these problems there. <laughs> and it, it's just amazing how much power people having phones with cameras readily available to them and how you can kind of depend on that in IT circumstances today. Yep. I remember being on a help desk call when I was at, Penn State uh, working in IT and I had someone you know have some sort of issue and I was like can you just like send me a picture 
on your phone, like an mm-hmm. email it to me, because mm-hmm. I think that would probably make this so much easier. And then I could see exactly what they are saying. And it just it just made the whole transaction faster. And even then, like I had remote tools, like I could have remoted into their system in that circumstance because we had remote tools available to us. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to like interrupt them and take over their computer to do that. And also like that can feel like unnecessarily disruptive for both of us and also kind of invasive. Yeah. And also like I wasn't actively on the phone with them either. I was just kind of, you know, chatting with them over support. So within like, you know, 30 seconds, they got a picture to me because I could just assume that they had some sort of device with a camera on it just readily available and could send it to me. And they did. And it worked. And it was awesome. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All the way back to quantum error correction. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lisa, we've talked about your origins in technical writing, but many would be interested to know that you're also a novelist. What got you started? What got me started? Um, well, writing fiction's kind of always been a part of my life in a way. When I was a kid and a teenager, I wrote these weird little stories. So I've kind of always written stories. And then I wrote my first book when I was 20. I can't say that it was um, that it was any good or publishable, but it was a good start and kind of an accomplishment to actually write a longer work that I actually finished because earlier in my life, that was historically really hard. I was great at starting projects and terrible at finishing them. So that was kind of a milestone. Very cool. What kind of books do you write? I am a crime novelist, so I write crime thrillers. Um, So far, my books have all been, I guess I would say, standalone mystery thrillers. And I'm now, for the first time, working on a mystery thriller series. I've never done that before. And um, that's also predominantly what I'm passionate about reading, too, is mystery thrillers. So I do read some nonfiction, but going back to like Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes novels that I read incessantly and continuously as a teenager. So that had a big influence, I think. You have a favorite crime drama? When I think of series authors, I think of Patricia Cornwell and the Case Scarpetta series, Armin Gamache and Louise Penny. Um, there, there are so many that I follow. And it's funny because I didn't really know how to write a series. And I realized that this is all I read. So like use the experts that are writing these amazing best-selling novels and use that as kind of a a formula and follow what they're doing. So that's what I'm doing now. Nice. So what was your latest book? Uh, The latest one published is called The Unseen. And that was published in the summer of 2019. And it's about a Boston Herald journalist. And the journalist is He's attacked, his house is ransacked, and his wife is kidnapped, and he gets an email from his father who died eight years ago. This is like all in one day. So he sets off on this desperate search to find his wife, of course, and that path sets in motion this sort of roller coaster ride, bringing him all over Europe. And ultimately, he realizes that it's all leading back to his own family, his father, and a secret document that his father was in possession of and kept hidden for most of his life hence the title. So that's called The Unseen, and that's the most recent one. Very cool. Do you see connections between your fiction writing and your career in software engineering? Great question. I I think in some respects, everything is storytelling. So if it's marketing writing, if it's a blog post, 
if you're communicating something to customers about a release, in a way you're telling a story, you know, with a beginning, a middle and an end and and also a focal point, what you want your recipient to come away with, one final thought. And then another thing that comes to mind is I'm thinking of code reviews, where software developers side by side review each other's code and provide feedback. And that's similar to, I think, both fiction and nonfiction writing. So when you finish writing a book, it's really a, like a lump of clay at that point, and it needs to be refined. So I have writing peers and some of the writing groups that I'm a part of, and we review each other's work, send it back and forth and provide feedback. I also have beta readers for all of my books after I've done my kind of three rounds of editing. And then I also have a professional editor that I work with after, after all of that. She, she gets it last, and she is amazing. I, I don't know what I would do without all of my editors. So those are two things that I think are kind of a connector. How much rework do you do at each stage? Oh my God, tons. Like what percentage do you think you're reworking at each stage? So the first draft of a book, I'm, I'm like three quarters um, through with this third book in a series that I'm writing. Once that's complete, there will be a huge difference between the quality of that book and the finished product when I'm ready to start sending it out to like a literary agent or a publisher. I mean, there's a lot that doesn't change, but there's just so much refinement in how I execute the language and also refinement in like story plot elements, you know, kind of logistical changes. There's so much that changes and it needs to change. And, you know, it's really hard not to be a perfectionist when you're writing and not to be an editor. I mean, you're really just trying to crank out the story, get the words on the page and get to the words, the end, and then kind of, then you sigh. And now the real work starts after that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's parts where you are really just set on and then you send it off to a, a beta reader and they're like, yeah, this part just doesn't really make sense. And it would be so much more clear if you just throw that away. And you're like, oh, no, I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or or the professional editor that I, um, that I work with. Um, one thing I tend to do is I tend to go from past tense to present tense. And she's mm. really good at, at picking up those things. But she'll also tell me if there's a part of the book that's slow. You know, if you're writing, right. if you if you're writing thrillers, the pace has to be, you know, has to be pretty pretty fast and definitely consistent. And if something's lagging and it's too slow, and I have too much backstory about things that happened in the characters' lives before, she always reminds me I have to constantly be asking what's happening now and why would the reader care about this. So sometimes it's just a matter of positioning, taking something that's slow and putting it, you know, like kind of breaking it up into different parts and putting it later, or like you say, just leaving it out just if it's not strong enough. So there is a kind of ego release that you have to have where if something's not good and if it's not strong and if it's not pushing your story along, it's out. Yeah, I think that that is also kind of true in software development where you have to choose what features to leave in, what features to leave out, which things are strong, which things are weak, which things to focus on. Like sometimes you may have things that you you need to do and you put it in the product, but you don't put it in front of the users because you really need to tell that story to them of like, what's the most important thing that they should care about and that they should latch on to. Yeah. Prioritization. Yeah. Yes. It's It's a really key part of the storytelling that you do as you know, like a software product, because if you just 
make a giant bullet pointed list of every single feature and you don't give any of them any weight above any others, then it just becomes a, a mess. But when you like pick out like these are the strongest things and then tie all the other features to those stronger things, then you have a more clear story that is easier to digest and mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. I, I think writing is like this in the sense that when you have things that aren't absolutely integral to the story, um, you have to leave them out or else then you're going to have a thousand page book that no one's going to want to read. You know, I mean, every, every genre has um, these kind of marketing benchmarks. So for mystery thrillers, generally, you want to make the book like 65 to 75,000 words. If I put too much detail in there about the characters' um, pasts and things that don't relate to the plot, the book is going to be too long and too slow and no one's going to want to read it. So yeah, so I have to be, I have to keep those things in mind. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you both so much. It's a it's a great opportunity and and I've really enjoyed the meaningful conversation. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us today on uh, Endpoint Management Today. Uh, this podcast is the brainchild of James Stewart and Rhonda Studnick Kaiser. This program is edited by James Stewart, and our original music is from Don Corcoran, who is uh, one of our Big Fix specialists and an all-around Renaissance man. Thanks again. Thanks, James. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>